Children are dismissed to junior church as I come up to begin the sermon. And I want to just thank Steve for the leadership and worship, and also Joyce, of course, and Megan and Elaine. But I appreciate it when he helps draw us into worship by following the lead of the Spirit. I believe that's what that was. The lead of the Spirit, having us sing something again, or just think more about worshiping the Lord. I I appreciate that. I think it's so important. You know, it's not just about leading songs. It's about leading worship and leading us into worship of God. We're going to be going to John chapter 1 here in just a moment. John chapter 1. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to give you a preview of coming attractions for just a moment, though. Um... And I don't know if they're attractions, but kind of, hopefully helping to attract you to Jesus. Uh, We are planning, I think I might have announced this last week, we are planning a Christmas Eve service at 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve. And Christmas Eve is on December 24th this year. And um, 4 p.m. And we plan to live stream it like we're live streaming any other service. I I, I don't, I'll just address it. I, I know that some people might think, should we be having a Christmas Eve service? And um, I just want to say, you know, we'll be here. Nobody's compelled to come here. We planned a live stream. We'll social distance like we do for any other service. And uh, I, I think, gee, I read a CNN article last night that said in Japan they had more suicides in one month than one year. Everybody has to discern, you know, their own health and talk to their own doctor or counselor and pastors and determine, you know, where they're at spiritually and how they're doing. Um, I'm really, really, really grateful during this time that we've been able to have virtual services. Um, But long-term, virtual can never replace the physical. And that's a little bit of a concern that I have and others have. Um, It's not just a CNN headline about more suicides in one month. There's been lots and lots of articles. I read counseling articles every week, and uh, there's lots of data about that, about the depression and the rise. And if you're feeling that way, uh, talk to me. Start by phone. We'll try to get you support. Um, Don't be afraid to get help. Um, Also, remember, from a biblical worldview, we're not meant to be isolated long term. We are. We have to be smart. When there, is a, when there is a concern about a virus or a sickness, we have to be smart and, and stay isolated for a time. But long term, we're not meant to, 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 to be alone. We're not meant to not get outside. The sunshine is important. Being out is very important. So I did want to share that. Christmas Eve service, 4 p.m. It will be virtual and, and physical, um, hopefully following the standards that are set for us with social distancing and etc. I wanted to share that. I also want to share, I'm beginning our Advent series today, and that'll go through, through December 29th, actually, um, no, December 27th, actually, uh, the two days after Christmas. And then the second sun, um, first Sunday of January, we're going to have a special preacher, and I'll be out. And then I'm going to begin a series on Romans. And I'm going to be preaching in an expository way. That means exposing the text verse by verse to Romans for the better part of 2021. It's called expository preaching. And I believe, based off of 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, it says to preach the word. It doesn't really say preach topics. I preach topics occasionally, and even when we preach topics, they should be based on the Bible. And I know Pastor Bobby did that as well. They were heavy in Bible. But um, I'm going to get back to 
expository sermon series is where I'm preaching through books of the Bible. And, and I'm going to only give Romans about 10 months or so. And I don't know whether that's too long or too short for you. Just to let you know how some other pastors do it, uh, I think John Piper spent something like 10 years in the book of Romans, preaching through Romans. Now, and some people have various opinions on that, but remember... Um, what does it mean to preach? What does it mean to preach? What's the difference between preaching in Bible study or preaching in Sunday school? Is it wrong to preach for 10 years in, in a book of the Bible? I don't think so. It's preaching the Bible. There's a lot of cross-reference there, a lot of correlation. Romans is Paul's great treatise on theology. I spent about two years in the book of Acts at my last church. Now, I did drift away from Acts for Christmas and Advent and things like that. Um, I believe preaching ought to be highly biblically based, 2 Timothy 4, as I just quoted, but also more focused than Sunday school. That's really the only difference between preaching and Sunday school. Sunday school is a modern movement, and, and believe me, I believe every one of you should go to Sunday school, okay? I believe every one of you, if you're available, should be at Bible study, all right? I'm not going to be talking to you, why aren't you at Sunday school on your way out the door? I'm just saying that. Sunday school is a more modern movement. Preaching and Bible teaching is not a modern movement. Sunday school started around 1780 in England. That's when Sunday school started. Preaching and Bible study did not start then. We can go back and read the sermons of John Chrysostom, which was about the 4th century AD. We can read the sermons of, of, of St. Augustine, of John Calvin, of Martin Luther, of John Wesley, of George Whitfield, of Jonathan Edwards, and all of them. And so preaching is supposed to be based on the Bible. So we're going to be going through the book of Romans. And then maybe after that, I'll pick another book of the Bible to preach through and, you know, go verse by verse, section by section. And I've outlined the book of Romans and we'll finish the book of Romans. The plan would be um, in October uh, next year. So hopefully at the end, if you stay with me, you'll really learn the book of Romans. And hopefully the other thing about it, by the way is when we're going through, if you go to Sunday school and you're studying a book of the Bible in Sunday school, and or when you go to another Bible study or when you go through um, a book study, like when I preached through Ephesians here and I preached through Galatians here or Romans, hopefully you learn good Bible study methods as well. It's important for all of us to be able to study the Bible, to be able to feed ourselves. It's called hermeneutics, and that means how to really study the Bible. And we need to get into the Bible and see what the Bible is saying objectively, not subjectively. Okay? Sometimes we sit around and we say, what's the Bible saying to me? That's the wrong way to say it. No. What does the Bible mean if you were never born? <laughs> okay? The Bible speaks objectively. It's not subjective. The Bible does not have a different um, interpretation to Joyce and then a different interpretation to Steve and then a different interpretation to Bobby. It's the same interpretation for everyone. There might be different applications, okay, but the Bible is objective, okay? So we need to be careful. Sometimes we get into what's called eisegesis. Think of the word I. That means we make it say what we want it to say. we got to be careful with that. So we're going to start preaching on Romans here in... Um, in a couple weeks, right after, right after Christmas and New Year's. For now, we're going to talk about Jesus. And we're going to talk about Jesus, God's indescribable gift. Jesus, God's indescribable gift. And we're going to be going to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 here in just a moment. Who can tell me what Emmanuel means? God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. And that is really the core message of Christianity, that Jesus died for our sins, yes, 
But he's also still with us through the Holy Spirit. He sends us the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John chapters uh, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus said, It's better for you that I go away so I can send you the Holy Spirit. That I can send you the Helper. Emmanuel means God with us. And this is the first Sunday of Advent. And so we're looking forward to Jesus' birth. Who can tell me what the word Advent means? Somebody say coming. A couple of people said coming. Good. The word Advent means coming. It's the idea of the coming of the Christ child. The coming of Jesus our Savior. With that in mind, I was recently thinking back to my thoughts about Jesus when I was a child. And I want to ask you to think back for just a moment, just for a minute, about your thoughts. Who did you think? What did you think about Jesus when you were a child? When I was a very young child, I thought that Jesus was the first man created. And that means I was essentially a heretic. um, Because Jesus was never created. And that's what I'm going to get to here in a minute. But, you know, you can't blame children. You know, they're growing and they're learning. And in many cases, actually, there used to be something called catechesis, where parents would catechize, would teach their children the Bible and theology in an orderly way. And it's actually coming back in Christian circles. And we need to actually come back to that. Uh, You know, when Sunday school started, since I already referenced Sunday school, when Sunday school started, there was a movement against it because they thought this is going to take Bible teaching out of the home. We're not going to keep doing Bible teaching in the home. The parents are going to rely on the church to teach their children the Bible rather than the parents teaching the children the Bible. And let me say right here, Bible teaching first and foremost begins in the home and then the church partners with the families to teach children the Bible. So what were your thoughts about Jesus when you were a child? Did any of you maybe think Jesus preceded Adam and Eve in being created? Maybe you thought that something else about Jesus. But, you know, later on, as I was raised, I did begin to understand that the idea of Christmas was Jesus' birth. And then I, I thought maybe if God decided to have one son, maybe he would decide to have another son. Again, I was quite a heretic there. Again, I was a child. It's quite excusable in children, not in adults. But then as I was raised, I, was, I later learned and or God taught me, no, Jesus was never created. Jesus was never created. Jesus is outside of time. Jesus did not have his beginning when he came to earth. He's always existed co-eternal, co-equal with the Father. And this is, what it, it, this is exactly what I want to talk with you about today. This year, over the next several weeks, I wish to talk about Jesus as the indescribable gift. Jesus, God's indescribable gift for Christmas. And I want to, and I want to credit Chuck Swindoll with the sermon series outlined. I, I heard his sermon messages, not his messages, just the outline. And I thought, that's a very good outline for an Advent series. I actually did not even listen to his sermons. I just copied this outline. Um, the sermons come from me uh, studying the scriptures and seeking the Lord. Today I wish to talk about Jesus as the gift of God's grace. Jesus, the gift of God's grace. Next week we will talk about Jesus, the gift of God's truth. Jesus, the gift of God's truth. Then we are going to talk about Jesus, the gift of God's love. Jesus, the gift of God's love. And on Christmas Eve, we will talk about Jesus, the indescribable gift, God in the manger. 
We have to talk about that on Christmas Eve, don't we? God in the major. Jesus, the indescribable gift. And on December, um, the last Sunday of December, December, that should be the 27th. On the 27th, we're going to still complete the series with Jesus, the gift of God's hope. So Jesus, the gift of God's grace. Jesus, the gift of God's truth. Jesus, the gift of God's love. Jesus, the gift of God's hope. Jesus, the indescribable gift. God in the manger. As we look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that Jesus' beginning was in eternity past. Actually, Jesus really has no beginning at all. But Jesus did choose to come to earth to become our sacrifice for our sins. Jesus made that choice. He didn't have to do it. He's God, okay? He's God and there is no other. Jesus chose to come to earth to become our sacrifice for our sins. God chose to become one of us. In John 1, 1 to 5, it also shows that Jesus is fully God, yet separate. Jesus is fully God, yet separate. And if that confuses you, you're not alone. Many people have been confused with these types of truths throughout church history. But remember, he's God. We're ultimately not going to be able to understand everything about God. Let's read John 1, 1 to 5. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to break down this passage as we talk about it over the next few moments. First, an illustration. Humpty Dumpty. You know the story of Humpty Dumpty. He had an unsolvable problem. We have a problem too, but ours has a solution, right? Ours has a solution. Jesus Christ came to our wall. Jesus Christ died for our fall. So that regardless of death and in spite of sin, through grace, he might put us together again. Jesus Christ came to our wall. Jesus Christ died for our fall. So that regardless of death and in spite of sin, through grace, he might put us together again. Let me give some context to this passage. And in so doing, allow me to show you how this passage relates to our Advent season. And in order to give context, I want to relate the gospel according to John with the other gospels. Matthew's gospel begins with Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective. Anyone who fills in the blanks and the fill in the blank in the bulletin, uh, there's two blanks there. Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective. That's Matthew's gospel. More specifically, Matthew's gospel begins with the lineage of Jesus. And Matthew takes Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham. That goes back to about 2000 BC. That's pretty amazing, by the way. I don't know about you, but I cannot trace my lineage 2000, 2000 years. But Abraham was around 2000 BC, and Matthew takes Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham. Matthew's gospel is primarily written to a Jewish audience. So repeatedly in the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew will say, this fulfilled this prophecy. This fulfilled this prophecy. 
Okay? Then in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew writes about John the baptizer. Luke's gospel, on the other hand, Luke's gospel begins, actually begins with John the baptizer preparing the way for Jesus. And actually, if you know Luke's gospel, which I'm sure you all do, um, you probably read it in the original Greek. If you know Luke's gospel, Luke begins with John's parents, Zacharias, his father, Zechariah, his father, and the prophecy about John the baptizer's birth. And it's just a marvelously amazing, wonderful passage. Later on in Luke's gospel, this is really neat, Luke gives the lineage of Jesus beginning with Adam. So it's kind of a one-upper, all right? Luke was kind of like, Matthew's, Matthew's going to take Jesus back to Abraham. I'm going to take Jesus' lineage back to Adam, ultimately inspired by God. Then we go to Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel begins with John the baptizer preparing the way for Jesus right at the beginning, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel. The point is that the other three gospels focus on John preparing the way for Jesus, and the gospel according to John will do that as well. But two of the other three gospels focus on Jesus' physical lineage. Going back to Abraham, going back to Adam, Jesus' physical lineage. Although with Luke, it actually goes back to Adam and this says the Son of God. They do this for a reason. Luke and Matthew do that for a reason. It was, it was important to establish that Jesus was the rightful king of Israel as he came from the family line of King David. But... This is important. John's gospel is focusing on Jesus' eternal past. That is what I want to focus on today. In a few weeks, we will get to the narrative of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. But first, let's look at Jesus' eternal past. John's gospel does not begin talking about who Jesus was born to. He goes all the way back. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's using that Greek word, um, that Greek word logos, to talk about the Word. And they would have known, and we know now for sure, that logos was talking about, the, about Jesus in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Um, long before Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, he already existed. And Jesus was active in creation. And this is important as many false religions and many cults have this false doctrine about Jesus. Many of the cults, many of the false religions mess with the deity of Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses are a very popular one. They, they, they mistranslate this passage and they believe Jesus was not coexistent, co-eternal with God the Father, but Jesus was the Archangel Michael in the Old Testament. It's important that we have our Christology correct. That's, Christology means a study of Christ, the study of the Messiah. Let's look at John 1, 1 to 5 a little bit more here. Notice that Jesus took on flesh. He became the light of the world. And this was all because of God's grace. Jesus took on flesh in order to save us from our sins. And this is God's grace. And now let's talk about the beginning. It says, what does it say? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It says, in the beginning. Stop right there. Now let's think about that for a moment. This is stating that what John is about to write about has to do with the beginning. 
More specifically, this has to do with the very beginning of time as we know about that. As we know about it. Just think about it. How do we think about a time before time? That really messes with my head. No matter what, I have trouble thinking about a time before time. No matter what, I have trouble imagining an existence without, without time. And this also goes back to my childhood and maybe you as well. I mean, from a very early age, I remember thinking, who created God? Because I did not understand that God is outside of time. That is chronological thinking. But God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit are outside of time. God created time. He created the whole idea of time. He created the whole timeline. It is amazing to think about that. In Genesis 1.1, it also says, In the beginning God created. Since Genesis writes in the beginning, and now John writes in the beginning, we can conclude that Jesus is beyond our timeline. Jesus is beyond our timeline. No matter what, we are stuck in chronological thinking because we are created within a timeline. That's not the same with God. He created the timeline. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Now John continues by stating that in the beginning was the Word. John does not say the Word was created in the beginning. No. The word, the Greek word logos, was not created. In the beginning was the word. The word was already in existence. John is saying that the word was already in existence in the beginning. He just was there. In Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's Revelation 22, 13. But what does John mean by saying the word? Basically, he's writing about Jesus. We know that by context. If you read the rest of the passage down to verse 14, we know that by context. As soon as he completes this first section, John will begin writing about John the baptizer in verses 6 through 9. Then in the very next verse, he uses the male pronoun translated as he to refer to the word. In verse 10, John uses the male pronoun translated as he to refer to the word. He is writing about Jesus. So we can gather that he's writing about a man. But in the first century, during this time period, the Jews and the Greeks would know that the, 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 the word logos, which we translated as the word, had a meaning. And that meaning meant that it embodied reason, which gives order to the universe. That word logos, translated as the word, had a meaning which, comp, um, which, which, which had to do with reason, which gives order to the universe. The Greeks had that idea. John, inspired by God, strategically used that word logos, translated the word right here. The Jewish people may have had a little more of a concept of the word as God and as the creator. They knew that word uh, logos meant all reason, all understanding, all logic, all wisdom, all order to the universe. And the Jewish people especially would have known that had to do with God, but so would the Greeks. John's audience would have known that John is writing about God and context will later show that John is writing about Jesus. Later on in verse 14, John writes that the word became flesh. So it is clear that the word is Jesus' eternal past. Jesus' beginning was not being born of Mary. No, Jesus was with God from the beginning. Jesus chose to become a man in order to die for us and save us by his grace. Jesus is a gift 
of God's grace. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, the Word was God. It says he was in the beginning with God in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Notice this. The Word, Jesus, was with God. Jesus has always existed with God. And now the text also says that Jesus was God. Now, this is not simply an eternity past concept, by the way. John is writing about this as an eternity past idea. But get this. Jesus is still with God. And Jesus still is fully God today. Notice that Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus is both the same as God and separate from God at the same time. That is what this passage is saying. Jesus was with God and was God. Don't try to understand this. If I could understand God, he would not be that great. Yet, God still has revealed certain things about himself to us. And we should try to educate ourselves as much as we can and then surrender to God and say he is God and there is no other. It is also critical that we understand that this verse is not saying that Jesus was a God, or the word was a God. No, Jesus is God, and Jesus is with God. We do not worship three gods, we worship one God. Co-eternal, co-equal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This passage says all things came into being through Jesus. Not some things, all things came into being through Jesus. Another critical idea that we must focus on is that all of creation came into being by Jesus. Look at this in verse 3. Everything you see was created by Jesus. Everything you see was created by Jesus. Jesus created everything that we see in the night sky. Jesus created those stars, those planets. It's mind-boggling when we think of how amazingly large outer space is. But Jesus created all that is in existence. Jesus created everything we see on this planet. He created the materials that we are made of. You realize that? Jesus created the people who crucified him. Jesus created the materials that formed the cross and the nails. He created everything. In Colossians 1, 16 through 17, in Psalm 8, it talks about this. According to this passage, things are not only created by Jesus, they are also held together by Jesus. He holds all creation together. Now think about that for just a moment. What does this mean for who we worship? What does this mean for who we put our trust in? We put our trust in Jesus who holds all creation together. Jesus, who is sovereign. Jesus, who is in control. It's called God's providence. We believe that when we pray to him, he really does have the power and the ability to change things, to make a difference, to answer our prayers. He is in control. Shouldn't we put our trust in Jesus as the one who holds all things together? Shouldn't we put our trust in Jesus as the one who owns all things doesn't the one who creates have ownership of all that he created? Think about that. We are in a day and age. We spend a lot of time on this in Sunday school, and we won't right now. But we are in a day and age where people really do think they are the master of their fate. They are the captain of their life. 
but God is in control. He created us. He owns all creation. He is sovereign. There's a good book coming out. I think it'll be good by John Piper called The Providence of God. I pre-ordered it. It's something like 700 pages, and I, I look forward to devouring it. God is in control. He is sovereign. You know, I think about the things that I fear, and maybe you think about the things that you fear. If God is truly in control, what do we have to fear? I think about a time I was running, I was in my 11th mile, I was in better shape than for sure, and, it was, and I saw a dead snake on the road. But my mind did not register dead, it registered snake. And I remember I saw the snake, and I kept running, of course, because you do keep running when you see a snake. And, you know, it makes you run a little faster. And, I, and afterwards, it hit me. My heart jumped. I mean, I already had an elevated heart rate. Right? I was running, but it jumped because of the snake. Do we really have to be afraid of snakes? No. God is in control. Now, we need a healthy respect for poisonous snakes and things like that, a healthy respect. We don't have to be afraid. My fears have changed. Uh, Mercedes, my oldest, is, going, is in her 10th year of life now, and I fear different things. I thought back to a time when she was about a year and a half old. We had this baby monitor, and it had a little, a little pad that went under the crib mattress, and it beeped if she stopped breathing because of the dangers of sudden infant death syndrome. But what we realized very quickly is sometimes it goes off because the baby has moved, not because they quit breathing. The problem with that is then every time it goes off, you think there's really nothing wrong. Well, there was one night, it was oh dark 30, the middle of the night, and the baby monitor goes off. And, and I go in there half asleep, and I start feeling around the crib, trying to find out where she's at. And I'm just thinking she just moved. And all of a sudden, I'm not feeling her in the crib. I can't find her. It's dark, of course. I can't find her. And it's amazing how much you can think about in a matter of seconds when that happens. I thought, did somebody get in here? Did something happen? And then she was in the far corner of the crib, praise God. She was fine. But we have different fears as parents or as grandparents or depending on whatever's going on in our life. As a father, I hear different sounds in the night and have different concerns as I have children to watch out for. But ultimately, we must remember that God is in control. It's okay and good to have a healthy respect for the dangers of certain snakes or other more serious dangers in life. And we certainly need to lock our doors at night and protect our children and use baby monitors like that and do things like that. But God is in control and we ultimately can't live in fear. We need to live in reverence for God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says, definitely. Many times we fear everything else, but we don't fear God. You ever think about that? We can't live in fear. God is in control. And Jesus is the gift of God's grace. Also, this passage is likely stating that things in heaven and on earth were created by him. This is stating that the angels and the demons were created by Jesus. If Jesus loves us, and the Bible teaches that he does, and Jesus created all things, who do we have to fear? Do you realize, based on the providence of God, nothing comes your way that has not first passed through God. Nothing you face in this life is apart from God's control. God is in control. 
Believe in the sovereignty of God. I shared this last night. It wasn't in the notes, but it's a good thing. Um, I knew I met somebody who was a Bible teacher at a pastor's conference a few years ago, and he was a special assistant to John MacArthur. John MacArthur is a well-known Bible teacher and writer. His study Bible is really, really good, and his writings are good. And, and he was talking, this man was talking to John MacArthur's wife one day, and John MacArthur's wife said, I've never seen my husband, John, get angry and, like, blow his top. And they're like, really? So later on, they asked him, and, and, and he, he was surprised. He said, she said that? And he said, well, if that's true, I guess it it's because I believe so much in the sovereignty of God. I believe so much in the providence of God. Why get so angry? Now, I'm not sanctified like that yet, okay? I get really angry when I try to fix the brakes on my car and I can't get a bolt loose, okay? I get really bothered. But the proper Christian response is to think, well, I guess God wants me to struggle with this bolt today and not to get angry because God is in control. God could make those bolts just come out so loose. And if God wanted to, he could make everything fit together perfectly well. He is in control. That's why we pray to him. That's why we don't have to fear. This passage goes on to say, in him was life. In him was life. That's verse 4. In him, that's Jesus, the word, logos. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we look at verse 4, we must grasp the idea that the life is in Jesus. In him was life. And this is a repeated concept in John's gospel. John's gospel uses the word life 36 times. In him was life. We have life in Jesus. The question is, do you have life in Jesus? Do you have life in Jesus? Have you accepted him as your savior? Have you believed in him? If so, then be encouraged. You have everlasting life through Jesus. And guess what? It's not just everlasting life. It's abundant life. John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come to give you life and give it to abundantly. This says he is the light. The final verse of this section says that he is the light. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Do you realize that? Jesus is like a flashlight shining truth into a world of false realities. Jesus is like a flashlight shining truth into a world of false realities. When you go about your day, when you turn on the TV or look at the news or whatever it might be, or read a book or watch PBS and they teach you some educational show, there is a world of false realities out there, and Jesus shines the light onto them. It's a false reality that money, a false reality that money and materialism leads to happiness. It won't. It won't. It is a false reality that life is meaningless. No, life has meaning and we can have a fuller life and eternal life in Jesus. There are many false realities out there, but Jesus sheds light on these. And may that be a challenge to us. Now, if we continued reading this passage, we would see in verse 14 that John begins to write about Jesus becoming a human being. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message says, the word put on flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Jesus is the word and he put on flesh and blood and he came into our neighborhood. And why did he do it? He did it to live with us for 33 years and die as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. As we move towards Christmas, 
and we look towards through the rest of Advent, we can be encouraged that Jesus is God with us. Jesus chose out of his great love for us to come into our neighborhood. He chose to be born of a virgin. He chose to be reared in poverty and to live a fully human life to give us grace. Praise God that Jesus chose to become one of us. Billy Graham tells a really neat story. He's walking with his son on the beach and they see some ants being taken over by waves or something. And he and his son tried to save the ants. But the ants didn't know they were trying to be saved. So the ants kept trying to scramble to get away. And they were just hurting themselves more. Until Billy Graham's son said, it's too bad. It's too bad that we can't become an ant to tell them we want to rescue them. And it's the best story. That's what God did. He he became flesh and blood. It's called the incarnation. In Jesus, to live with us to die for us, to do that what we could never, we could never do that on our own. We could never do that on our own. Let's look at some applications. Jesus has always existed, and this means that we can trust him. If he existed prior to the beginning, he must know the future. We can trust him. And this is especially true corresponding to Genesis 1-1 with the idea that Jesus created time. We must trust Jesus. He has the whole world in his hands. Past, present, and future are in Jesus' hands. He's in control. If all things came into being by Christ, we must surrender to him as owner of all things. You realize that? Jesus owns your money. It's not your money. It's his. Jesus owns your house, your car, everything you have. It's not yours. It's his. Jesus owns everything that we have in treasure. And guess what? He even owns our own lives. I'll tell Mercedes and Abigail, my children, they were God's children before they were my children. We have a responsibility under God to raise them and to take care of their physical felt needs and their educational needs and their emotional needs and most of all their spiritual needs. But they are God's children before they're our children. On the positive side, given that all has come into being by Jesus, we can trust him. If Jesus created and sustains all creation, again, remember, you can trust him. He is in control. Remember that Amy Grant song, God is in control? I won't sing it. We must trust Jesus as he owns everything. Jesus is the only way to receive and have life, true life, and life eternal. We must follow and embrace the life that Jesus offers us. We must and will comprehend Jesus' light. We must allow Jesus' light to shine in and through us. There was a cartoon of Dennis the Menace. Remember Dennis the Menace? He rushes into the room with his mother standing there, and his mother sees what he's holding, so his mother's mouth is open, wide open. And Dennis the Menace is holding a big box. And Dennis the Menace says, We'd better tell Santa Claus to forget about the train set I asked for. I just found one on the top of Dad's closet. Jesus is God's greatest Christmas present. A present is grace. Jesus is God's gift of grace, his indescribable gift of grace to us. Do you know him? Are you surrendered to him? Is he your Lord and is he your Savior? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we truly are surrendered to you. You, are, you have given us grace through Jesus, and we do thank you so much. Lord Jesus, if anybody does not know you as Lord and Savior, anyone listening to this message, whether today or tomorrow or virtually or present here, may Christmas not only be 
celebrating your birthday, but also celebrating our own spiritual birthday. And for those here that do not have a spiritual birthday because they're not saved, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day to confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior, believe in you as the one and only Savior, trust in you and commit to you. We pray for your continued presence with us. Lord God, remind us of these truths that we see in this awesome, amazing passage. Oh, Lord, you are in control. We really have nothing to fear at all. We should have a healthy respect for certain dangers in life and take precautions, but then we surrender them to you. You are in control. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.